How's it going, everybody? Thank you for tuning in. And if you want to support this show, the best way to do it other than listening is to make sure you're subscribed, leave a quick review, and share it with a friend. Share the show with anybody you think might enjoy it. We appreciate it a ton, and uh, we'll continue to keep pumping these out. My guest today is a social worker with a master's in social work from Austin, Texas. She is a certified trainer at Onnit Academy. She's a blue belt at 10th Planet Austin. She's a mom, and she's got some really interesting insights um, from experience working in acute psychiatric care um, and social work, which we dove into a lot. And I really wanted to get her perspective on how the pandemic has impacted mental health. And she gave me a lot of really good in information about that. Uh, we talked about an, all kinds of great stuff as it pertains to mental health. Um, we even got into homelessness and we spent some time talking about cannabis and how cannabis impacts mental health. Something that, you know, I've been pretty hard about pushing back on, but glad that I had the conversation. And I think I left with a, a little bit more of a enhanced understanding on it. And uh, I appreciate that. Please give it up for my guest, Jamie Figari. But before we enjoy this episode, a quick reminder to head over to drinkaction.com, and that's action with a K. Use code word curious when buying any of your favorite specialty roast coffees or any of your natural supplements. Great tasting coffee, supplements like turmeric and hemp, MCT bombs, and even a new mushroom blend coffee for immunity and endurance. You won't find better coffee, and if you want a subscription to make sure that your products are at your house every month or maybe every 15 days or every 21 days or however many days in between you want, you can customize it. You can set that up as well, and it'll save you 20%. Check it out. Make sure you use code word curious and enjoy this episode. So yeah, no, thank you. I, I literally have been, I've been pumped to have this conversation because I dive into so much other stuff. But as I was telling you, when we talked a couple of days ago, um, being a father brings up like all this new shit, right? And uh, knowing that you're a social worker, I'm correcting that, right? Yes. Okay. Master's in social work. Yes. So I just took my licensing exam. So I'll be a licensed master social work as soon as I get my license number. So right now I'm an MSW master social work. Awesome. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So, you know, we touched on a couple of different things that I wanted to make sure we come back to, but, you know, maybe to kind of just level set the conversation, give some insight into what that means, being a social worker, kind of where your focus is and some of the stuff that you you kind of deal with on a day-to-day -day basis and then uh, I know there's a couple of topics that I'm really looking to dive into but I think framing it will give people a, a better understanding. Yeah so um, when I decided to go I knew that I wanted I knew that I was always interested in psychology and I was actually in my own um, seeing my own therapist and she's actually the one that sort of urged me to go down the path of becoming a social worker. Uh, she's a LMS LCSW. So she's a licensed clinical social worker, which is what I'm um, 
hoping to, you know, continue to go on, get my clinical hours so that I can do private practice. And sort of what distinguishes social work from other professions is that there's more of a, there's a, a, a wide range of things that we can focus on. So I actually came into social work with a PR background and I had worked in nonprofit. So social work really appealed to me because you have a lot of avenues of things that you can pursue. So you can pursue advocacy, you can um, go into grant writing. I have a writing background. I always have loved writing. And um, I knew that I wanted to be a therapist, but I also wanted to have some other doors open. And social workers also, we, we come at things from, we call it a biopsychosocial perspective. So we're always looking at the person within their environment. And it's, also known to have more of like a strengths-based perspective. So when we assess someone, we're always looking at like, okay, what are the strengths of this person? Of course, it's easy to pick out people's weaknesses, but if you can come at that person from like, okay, well, they have a good family support system. Maybe they're struggling with this, these things in their life, but you know, they have all these positives. What can we build on from there? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's kind of where I was going to ask, is it, you know, being able to identify where people can shine as opposed to what they're maybe have anxiety around or feel insignificant or insecure about, you know, gotta be a, a way to help build people up. Um, from us, you know, I always wonder nature versus nurture and you touched on something, you know, the environment that they're in and how that impacts people. And I go back and forth on it because I see my little one doing things now that, I'm like, how could he know that? That's got to be just genetic, right? But right. you certainly see how an environment, and especially, you know, and one of the things I want to talk about was pandemic environment and how that's really impacting people. But, you know, do you see that one really impacts more than the other? Or is it really dependent on the person? Or is it truly a mix? Um, I tend to think that, you know, our personalities tend to be pretty fixed. And maybe that doesn't necessarily have so much to do with the environment that we're raised in. I mean, we certainly have these characteristics of, that make up our personality and those tend to be pretty fixed from the time we're born. So there, but there's also things that, that happen within one's life that cause certain aspects of their personality to become more volatile, if you will, or they're more susceptible or more prone to certain behaviors as a result of their environment. So I think it's a mix, but personality wise, I think that we are kind of who we are from the time we're born and that we have these um, factors that these contributing factors that, you know, lead us down certain paths, but that's a, it's a great question. Uh, I don't have, the right answer for that. I don't know that there is one. There's certainly different schools of thought. Um, but, you know, I grew up in the same environment as my brother and we're night and day. So certainly there's a, an aspect of our personalities that are fixed. You hear about a lot of people who, you know, as an adult, they're still dealing with things. And I, I guess from my perspective, I never understood, is that just, is it missed by people or is it really truly something that maybe even that person suppresses so much that it doesn't come back up and they don't even realize that they're dealing with those emotions until they get a little bit older, more mature. Yeah. So trauma is so, um, it's so tricky. And I do think that um, there's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score. It's written by a researcher. His name is 
Bessel van der Kolk, and he's he's um, done several TED Talks, and he's kind of you know the go-to person in trauma. He's very well respected. But what we do know about trauma is that it does when you when someone's exposed to trauma very early on in their childhood, it completely impacts their brain development. So your brain is actually, you know, wired a certain way. And when your body experience, when you're, you experience trauma, it can stunt various aspects, aspects of um, brain development. So it can cause people to suppress certain emotions. And sometimes those emotions are right on the surface and other times, you know, which can cause certain behaviors and people to act out, or maybe they can act impulsive or, you know, they'll suppress emotions um, by self-medicating with things like drugs or alcohol, which is why you see a lot of, you know, individuals who are exposed to trauma early on, they, they sort of can self-medicate with, there's a very strong correlation between trauma and, you know, substance abuse early on in childhood. And I've certainly, I have personal experience, you know, even close friends that were, had experienced, you know, intense trauma in childhood and those, those things didn't even resurface or didn't even come into their realm of consciousness until they were triggered by something through adolescence and then that's resurfaced and then they were able to start to put those pieces together and it's interesting it can it can be both you know it definitely but but we do know that when you're exposed to trauma early on in childhood that it it can it can change who you are and it can cause an individual to um their, their brain development is so impacted by that. It's like their stress response, how they respond, their nervous system responds to certain triggers is also impacted as well. You know, you have fight, flight, fright, flight, fight, or freeze response. And so those are all impacted by, you know, when your brain, brain is flooded with chemicals, um, you respond a certain way. And yeah, trauma impacts that. And it's a it's a, it's an amazing book. It breaks down so many different aspects of like how we can help trauma and move through our body with movement, which is something that I'm really passionate about personally is just like the mind body connection. He focuses a lot on, you know, what they've done. The research that he's done focuses a lot on um, bringing people into a setting where they're able to, you know, practice yoga or meditation and really develop that mind body connection to sort of because we hold it within our body and um even my therapist has worked with me with something called somatic experiencing which is when you hold on to certain emotions in your body they won't leave your body unless they're attached to like a specific movement so there's there's research that supports the benefit of movement to move those emotions through the body so glad you brought that up. I recently had Evan Britton on my podcast, and he's a former NFL football player who's kind of gone through a lot in his transition out of the NFL, battled with some substance abuse, has been clean and sober and, and really taken on kind of like a yogi life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, such an awesome guy. If anybody that's listening to this, go back and listen to the last episode. He's so powerful in what he talks about. But one of the things he mentioned in that episode was um, some conversations he had with a kettlebell coach, Joe DiStefano, mm -hmm. and talking about nasal breathing and the importance of nasal breathing on this 
um, how it impacts the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system. And by breathing through your nose, we put ourselves into a calmer state of mind and an ability to actually leverage the frontal cortex of our brain to, to make better decisions. And, you know, is that something, it sounds like kind of very similar to what this guy's talking about. Yeah. So I literally, I'm so passionate about, about that. And I think, um, you know, I did, I, my whole master's, it's kind of like my, my thesis, if you will, was built on an acute psychiatric care, which is where I'm at right now. Um, we know that there's like very little opportunity for movement. And so I created like a movement-based curriculum, even for people within acute psychiatric care who are often like heavily medicated. It's like, how can we get these people moving? Because they need to be able to activate their nervous system and their breath and bring themselves inward to be able to calm their nervous system down. And if they can learn even just a simple coping skills like you know taking even even something as stimulating as like um that stimulates your senses even just like playing with um with something that's sensory mm -hmm. so even having like a, something to you know hold on to that's soft or even utilizing things like ice cubes and stuff will will activate your senses and it can create a sense of calm so anytime you can tap into your nervous system and activate your nervous system and you know your parasympathetic get into your parasympathetic and then you're going to be in a state of calm and I it's just something that I feel so passionate about which is when I was doing my my master's I also was trying to do my yoga I did my yoga certification along with it because I wanted to bring that into private practice once I have private practice I, I want to do something that's movement-based because we also just don't we don't move enough how much of how much of our mental health is a result of just us not moving our bodies and having a healthy sense of like how we should be eating it's all correlated it's all related it's it's disturbing when you look at this whole pandemic and covid because I, again, and I'll, I've kind of gotten away from this topic, but I probably was like over the top in the middle of it, but when you look at the response to a virus and when you look at the big picture of how it's impacted people and most healthy individuals are able to get past it, you know, and then you look at the impact on mental health and the, the you know, when it runs and we can, and I know we were going to talk about homelessness and how that, but it's, it's, it blows my mind that the remedy to this virus was stay inside. Don't go to the gym. Don't move. You know, stay, stay out of nature. All of the things that impact mental health in such a positive way was like, oh, no, stay, wear a mask. Don't connect with people. I, I just, there has to be a, there has to be an, uh, I don't know what the outcome of that is. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of research in, in the coming years of what that's done to society in general. But I mean, do you have a perspective? I'm sure you've got a perspective. Yeah, on that. I do. I mean, I have a really strong perspective and I think it's, um, I, I definitely felt like an outlier in terms of like, um, struggling with, with, what was being what we were being told and what I knew to be 
healthy for me, for my family is like, we have to move. I have two little boys are very active and I was very definitely very frustrated with the language around, you know, what, like this idea that, that this is going to be what we have to do to get through this is to just stay inside and isolate, especially when, when we know that the virus, the, the highest spread was through households where people were staying in closed environments. So it definitely felt counterintuitive. And I definitely felt like an out, outlier in terms of like, um, I guess the, the directive of, of what we were being told from a health perspective and, you know, the guidelines that were being pushed were, that were being given to us through by the CDC. And then the knowledge that I have of mental health and the importance of movement and how that impacts your overall mood, your overall state of being, the, the need for us to exercise. And I made a a choice really early on that I was going to look at our family and I was going to prioritize our mental health. And I wish that um, we had more of that. I really wish that people that, that yes, we do need to protect vulnerable communities and vulnerable individuals. However, we do have the ability to continue to protect ourselves from this virus and still go outside and be active and, and be safe and not be spreading, spreading the virus everywhere. I mean, so we early on, I mean, Zach and my two boys, like we would go from walks for like miles because we couldn't do anything else. So like the first few weeks, it was like, okay, well, we're not going to stay inside because this is not going to be healthy for us. And we would go out and we would hike for just hours because early on there was literally nothing else that we could do. So I took the opposite approach of staying in and I was like, we're getting outside. We're going to get vitamin D because that also helps your immunity, helps boost your immunity. It's all related. And yeah. And I, and, and I made a, a point really early on, as soon as I could, that we were going to continue to train jujitsu. And that was, you know, it was a, I had family members that I got backlash from because they didn't agree with that perspective. And, and I understand, while I understand it, I also believe in the freedom of choice and the ability that we should have to be able to make decisions for ourselves and for our families. And fortunately, I'm part of a community that, that um, you know, we, we're all, I don't have a ton of family here. I have a brother that lives up north and that I don't see that frequently. And so this, my jujitsu community is my community. And so we were all sort of on the same, we were on the same wavelength. So it wasn't an issue and we, we were all connected to each other. And yeah, so I think I felt like an outlier for sure in that I can, aspect. I can imagine. And it, again, it's just like, why is that the only thing of importance? Like that's the risk, but nobody wants to acknowledge the negative effect of taking all the other things away. It's like, stay in the house and don't get sick. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, you're, you want me to protect myself from this negative thing happening, but you don't want to acknowledge that all the other negative things are still like real and impactful to health. And it's like, and, and you probably think about this or, you know, mental health is it's like invisible and it makes it, makes it tough. I, you know, I grew up with family that have, you know, mental health and um, some issues there. And as a child, it was always hard for me because you couldn't understand it. And as I've gotten older and, you know, gone through it and had to deal with a lot of different things, it's, 
I've changed my perspective on that, obviously, probably out of, because I had no choice, but to, but I, you know, to me, that's, it's something that should be discussed at a much larger level because on an individual basis, it's, it's hard to, to really kind of make a dent. Right. But right. You, I mean, you see, and homelessness is kind of like a big problem with that too. I mean, a lot of people who are on the streets right now have mental health problems. And so nobody want, no, like nobody will talk about that. It's like, well, how do we get these people off of the streets or we should let them stay there? I, it's like both, both of these arguments are asinine. Like the, these people need help. Yes. Yeah. It's, um, it's the homeless problem. Homelessness is a very complex issue. It's because you're right in that um, the majority of people that I see in the hospital and just, just to, you know, sort of, I work in acute psychiatric care. So the hospital that I serve works with a very um, acute population of people. The average length of stay is seven to 10 days. And so the, the goal is when someone comes in, they're in a state of acute crisis. So that could be suicidality. They could, um, a lot of, we see a lot of just people with suicidal tendencies or suicidal ideation, we call it, um, someone who, who may have tried to commit suicide and wasn't successful. And then you have individuals that come in because they're roaming the streets and they, they might be, you know, schizophrenic or have a mood disorder. Um, maybe they were arrested as a result of that. So there's all these things, uh, that kind of play together and <laughs> the, the homeless issue is, is very complicated. And I, I don't know, it's like, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Because you have the mental illness is the mental illness, the result of a, you know, could it be related to substance abuse, which caused their mental illness, or is it vice versa? I read an interesting stat, and maybe it's wrong, but the, like 70% of people who are homeless, the main contributing factor is a catastrophic loss of family, where they don't have anybody to turn to, because I mean, I, or, or their family maybe is still living, but has completely, you know, removed themselves from that individual's life. And that to me could be traumatic and add to mental health. Right. I mean, you, you right. have no one to turn to that be alone in your own thoughts could be a very troubling thing. Yes. I think, um, for me, it's, it's like, the loss of connection and this has been just something that i see so in this in this time that i've been working at the hospital which i started at the hospital in the midst of covid like kind of at the peak and it was um so august of 2020 was when i started at the hospital and in that time i've been able to work in so we have three units we have an adult unit which is co-ed um an adult women's unit. And then we also have an adolescent unit. And then we have an outpatient facility that's also located on our campus. And so I've had the opportunity to work in all three settings. And man, I can tell you that COVID has, I've seen people, you know, that have been sober for years that have relapsed, just the isolation right now. And we don't, 
we don't talk enough about the core, the correlation between like, what's the social isolation and how is this impacting mental illness? And, and how is this, what are the numbers? I mean, you do see it, you do hear it talked about, but it, in my perspective, it doesn't get nearly enough attention is what's the, what's the impact of that we're seeing suicidality and how is it impacting mental health and how many lives are we losing as a result of, of, COVID isolation mm-hmm. that's resulted in suicide. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, think about teenagers, right. Who need to be in school spent as much as it's important to learn. And I would question that kids are able to learn via zoom. I mean, I'm doing business via zoom. It's a nightmare sometimes. Like how is a kid yeah. doing that? But then you're removing the connection of being able to like half of the whole middle school and high school experience is like, making connections with other kids your age as you're going through this, you know, growth process in your life. And I mean, I don't know what it what that impact is, but I would have to imagine it's humongous when you take that away. Like, I I don't know who I would be right now if I didn't have those key years of time spent with with friends. Yeah, and imagine you do come from an environment that wasn't healthy prior to COVID. And so now you're in a setting and you're in the setting that's maybe you don't feel safe in your house. And now you don't have another option and you're being, you know, forced to kind of isolate in a, an environment that's, that's not healthy. And parents are juggling, um, you know, school with work being, it's, it's very, it's very complicated and I don't have all the answers, but I know when I was working in outpatient setting with adolescent youth, it was very clear that um, so much of their, of, of what was causing them to feel the way they, they did was a result of just so much change that has happened in such a short period of time. And it's, it's a lot for anyone to deal with, let alone someone who might already be predisposed to that. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's just like, what do you, what can you do? What can we do for them right now? It's like, we can't change. We can't change. There's, there's certain things that you can work towards, but being a therapist and trying to um, solve an issue, which we, I can't change that mm-hmm. isolation aspect of like, I can't get them back in a school setting where they're able to connect with others. And I think sometimes one thing that we see a lot is that people who have already had a history of coming into the hospital that becomes a place that they come to socialize, which sounds completely counterintuitive, but we do see it. And we see that sometimes when they get into the hospital setting, they, they develop connections with others that might be in the same space as them. And those connections are not always healthy either, but you definitely see um, a tendency for for them to maybe not want to leave because this is where they have friends. Now they've developed these relationships in this setting. And now it's like, they don't want to go because if they go, they're back in the same place that they were, which was isolated. And that, that's a really hard thing to do as a therapist. You have to, there's a term that we use for individuals who have a tendency to want to hang around the hospital longer than expected because the hospital setting is a better setting than 
discharging and having to go back to a tent on the street or a homeless shelter. Mm -hmm. So trying to balance, okay, is this person appropriate for the hospital? Are, are they trying to stay because they don't want to leave the setting? And that's, that's also difficult to, to balance of, you know, making the clinical judgment call to, to understand that we can't do anything more for this person here. They're not getting better beyond this point. Like we can't fix the homeless problem. We can only treat their condition as they appear in the hospital. And, and it's a, it's, it's not, I don't think, you know, when you know that they're, you're discharging someone out to a homeless shelter, it is, it is one of those scenarios where you're hoping for the best, but you know that, that their life circumstances haven't changed in a seven day stay. Yeah. And we talked about this earlier. I mean, you know, I had, as I said, you know, family that had some struggles and unfortunately I had a, a family member that took their life years ago and, you know, they were in an acute environment for a short amount of time because of some, you know, some troubling behavior and they left because, you know, okay, their, their time was up and they seemed like they were doing better. They were medicated. And, you know, the, I think the misconception from a lot of people uh, was that he was okay. And, um, you know, he seemed like he was better. And then very shortly thereafter, he, he took his life. And I think it confused a lot of people. But in hindsight, it really shouldn't have, you know, he was, he was struggling, he was reaching for help. And, you know, I think we talked about how that is probably happening a lot. And unfortunately, I mean, that was even somebody who was released to the care of somebody. There's a lot of people to your point that are they don't have anybody to go to. So it's like they, they leave. Okay. And then, okay. That, now they come back off those meds and right. struggling possibly even worse. Yeah. So that is, that's something that we talked about and it's definitely um, one of the things I learned, it wasn't something that I knew going in either because it just wasn't, I think you, you learn so much when you're in the things you just are not going to get from a book until you're in that environment. And I, I'm so fortunate. I have brilliant, a brilliant um, supervisor. I have a great staff that I've just learned so much from, but I learned in that time that I was there that they're at the highest risk. Actually, individuals are tend to be at the highest risk when they leave the hospital because, you know, they're on the up and up when they, when they're being discharged, hopefully they're at their, they're at the highest therapeutic benefit that they can get from the hospital when they discharge. And then the, when they discharge, you know, depending on those circumstances, they might have to go back to a situation which is less than perfect. And that's why when we discharge someone, we always, we always try to make sure that there's a supportive individual that's picking them up from the hospital. And we always try to advocate that they stay with someone, even if it's just for a few days so that they can get back on their feet and get some monitoring. I mean, sometimes these circumstances are completely out of our control because people just don't have a support system, unfortunately. And, and it's, it's really sad, but um, we do everything we can to make sure that, that that call is made and that they're with a supportive person. If it's possible, if it's, if it's at all possible when they leave the hospital, mm -hmm. because you're right, if they, when they're in the hospital, they're getting so much attention and they have a nurse administering we have what's called a q15 so they're being checked in on you know someone's looking at them 
throughout the day, every 15 minutes to check on them and see like where they are. And so um, when they leave the hospital, it's like, what's the level of accountability that they have to stay on their medications? Who's managing those meds in the hospital? It's all being administered for you. There's very little that they have to think about, but someone that might not have very good insight to their illness might just be, you know, leave the hospital and just decide, oh, I don't want to take my meds. Or maybe there's a barrier for them discharging to be able to get on their medication. When they discharge, they always have a medication script, but what if they don't have transportation? We, we're giving them a one-way ticket somewhere and then they have to, if they're homeless, you know, transportation can also be a barrier mm-hmm. too. And it can cause people to just fall off their medications and be non-compliant. And, you know, it's something, unfortunately, that we, we don't have a lot of control of when they leave. Yeah, no, it's, it's scary. And I, I do want to ask a question. I don't, Yeah. this could be so ignorant, but I, you know, I, I've kind of come full circle from medication and this is why I bring it up. You just, you know, mentioned yeah. medication, right. And, you know, I used to think like, okay, people just need to learn how to deal with their problems and, mm-hmm. and figure it out, you know? Uh, and then I think I saw a lot of positive examples, you know, are people over-medicated in this country? Are they not medicated enough? And I know this is probably a real slippery one to answer, but because I, I do see the benefit of psych, psychiatric medication for people who need it. But right. I, I always just, even though I've come full circle, I still have this feeling that there's a lot of people who leverage it as a crutch. And, uh-huh. and, and maybe not even that they leverage it as a crutch, but it, you turn on the television and it's just like, for me, it's, it's impossible to believe that we're not over-medicating people who don't need it when you see a commercial on television talking about, here's a, a psychiatric medication for somebody who's experiencing side effects from their other psychiatric medication. And the way we've monetized, and really one of the only countries to kind of really commercialize pharmaceuticals and advertise pharmaceuticals, yeah. I'm like, I know they're doing good for people. But is there a problem? And how do you, I mean, how can you tell other than going in and seeing a doctor? But then is that doctor being pushed by a, a sales rep to really like, you know, get this into your client's hands? I think you're right. I mean, it's such a, that's such a slippery slope and such a complicated issue. And I also came into the psychiatric environment with you know, definitely being more conservative with medication and feeling like it wasn't always like I'm always, um, I've never medicated personally. I've definitely struggled throughout my life with depression. There's a strong, um, family history of depression in my family. Um, so personally, and I also, my grandmother actually committed suicide. And so I never, I didn't know my grandmother, my mom, she committed suicide actually when my mom was, um, like two months old. So, um, I definitely, and I never, there was always stigma around just handling your problems and never, never, ever really, it was, would have never been actually, I remember in high school thinking when everything came out about ADHD and that was like a new Mm -hmm. thing. And I was like, this is, this is me. Like, I look like this, this is the symptoms that is, and I was actually I remember advocating for myself and being like, this is, I have all of these tendencies that my mom and my dad were like, 
you are not getting on medication ever. And I'm actually really glad that they did because it was such a, a new thing. Um, however, coming into Austin Oaks and just being in acute psychiatric care has switched, you know, it's flipped my, it's opened my eyes to when it's absolutely necessary because I've seen people come in that are, are, you know, in a state of psychosis and it's, they're, they're unrecognizable to themselves. And um, if they don't, if they're not offered something to try to resolve those symptoms, you just, I mean, especially like bipolar disorder is one that really comes to mind where it's very difficult to manage without medication or any type of like mood or thought disorders are very difficult to manage without medicine. And so I've had to come to terms with that myself. And certainly it can be, we see, I see individuals that come in that have med seeking behavior. So they're addicted to perhaps opiates or, you know, benzodiazepines. And those are very addictive prescriptions and very addictive drugs. And, um, you know, you see, you see people sort of, of, will come in and they'll say that, you know, they need these things, they need these things. And it's, it's clear that it's like, okay, this is an addiction. You actually need to be brought back down from that. We need to, you know, titrate that stuff and actually get you to a place where you're not needing that so much. So it's very complex. And certainly, I mean, I think that it depends on the individual. You can't, you can't, we can't look at it it's very nuanced. I think there's, there needs to be a more nuanced understanding of like how drugs impact the individual. But one thing I can say is that when you do have someone that comes in from a, a setting, there, a lot of the issue that I see is, is poor diagnoses. So they they might be going to one doctor for one thing and they might have a diagnosis for something. And then a lot of, you know, and from my perspective, it seems like there's a lot of poor diagnosis that can lead someone to be on a medication that maybe is not right for them. And then they're in this flux of like, how do they manage their medications? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. It's a tough one. Right. And it's, it's, it's kind of murky. And I, again, I seen the benefits firsthand of people who have completely changed for the better because of medication. So I, I don't want it to come across that way. I yeah. just, I get so concerned when I turn on the TV and it's just like, Oh yeah. How, how is this possible that, you know, it, it's like, it's taking the, and I think it goes to your point about the misdiagnosis. It's taking away the, the professional's ability to go and find it. It's like, you have people coming to the doctor saying, Hey, I want this prescription. And then you have a doctor who's like, okay, well shit. Like I need to move a certain amount of these. Like what, what's, what's making you think that way? Okay. Yep. Check, check, check. I mean, I've had enough yeah. experiences with doctors that I left thinking like, okay, I just, I have four prescriptions right now. And I, like, I don't understand how I got all these. I just went in there because I, I felt a little crappy. Um, yeah. I think it's easier for me to justify the need for certain medications in acute care. Yeah. Um, if I were in private practice, you know, working in private practice, I think it's different. Like we, we don't have the opportunity to do like a lot of behavior modification, but a lot of this is behaviors that can be managed. Some, sometimes, you know, you have people that, so this is an interesting thing, actually, 
we'll have a, individuals that will come in that are personality disordered. Like it's clear that they have what we call um, cluster B personality traits. So maybe there's like some antisocial personality, um, borderline personality traits, which is characterized by like very unstable relationships. And it can lead, you know, we, we have people that will come in that will present with personality traits, but that's not something that is a diagnosis that is covered by insurance. So even though they might present with these personality traits, an official diagnosis would look more like bipolar disorder, or um, if it's a thought disorder, of course you have schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorders. Are, are the, like, when you're hearing delusion, when you're hearing voices and having hallucinations and stuff, it looks a little bit different. But certainly, when you have someone that has more personality disordered those are things that maybe those could potentially be addressed in an outpatient setting with like behavior modification, like cognitive behavioral therapy, because a lot of it is, is a lot of people are, have more control over their, their life than they want to believe or sometimes want to take ownership of. And so you know, when we see personality, people that come in that have a strong personality element. I don't, I don't know if the, is the medication going to be the end all be all? Well, there's certainly some behaviors that are leading this person to present in this fashion. I'm so glad you brought this up. And you know, I, I was hesitant. So I have somebody very, I have somebody who's close to me um, my whole life that is borderline personality disorder and was diagnosed bipolar early on was on a lot of different medications. And, you know, there's been this ongoing debate around learned behavior, cognitive therapy, and really the time that that it takes. And my, my frustration has always been that, you know, the medication on that on this situation is kind of more of a detriment. And it's the easy button to kind of say, hey, I'm taking care of something without actually doing the hard work that will actually solve the problem that's in front of somebody. And you know, it's, it's just interesting. You brought that up because uh, you, yeah, it made me making me think about a lot right now. I think, I think when we talk about people that have strong personality elements that, that the behavior modification could potentially be more beneficial than a medication because attention seeking behaviors, um, even things like self-injurious behavior, which we see a lot of, those are things that the individual can control. They might, they might have lowered inhibition as a result of, you know, some of these symptoms of depression and stuff, but if they can learn better coping skills to handle their stress, and that's something that we talk about so much. It's something that I was working with a lot with um, the adolescent youth that I worked with in, in um, outpatient because we see a lot of self-injurious behavior. And at some point you kind of have to, they feel like there's nothing they can do. And it's, it's, you're, you're trying to empower them that like, no, but you can learn these other things and it will help if you try, mm -hmm. if you try, and if you really commit to the outcome. And then it's like, how, how committed are you to getting better? And sometimes they, they haven't decided, you know, there's the stages of change, there's five stages of change that we talk about. And sometimes I'll educate people. It's like, 
what stage of change are you in? Are you still in, in um, denial that some of these behaviors are contributing to your decline? You know, are you willing to give up those things that are causing you to be in the state? And maybe that's drugs, maybe that's alcohol, maybe that's, um, maybe it's cutting, maybe it's the self-injury. You know, are you willing to recognize that that's something that you actually have the power of over? If you're willing to learn the skills to, to modify the behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is the tendency to kind of feel like you have no, so you don't have control over that. And so hence I need something to give me the ability to have control over that because it's not my own free will. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that, um, you know, and, and it's complicated. I think that I don't want to diminish someone's experience because I know it's not that simple. It's easy for someone to sit back and tell you, you have the ability to control this, but, um, just being open to trying something other than what you're already doing, because it's, it's, it's sort of like, you have to break it down. Like, well, this isn't working for you. This hasn't worked. So what are you willing to try that you might not really be open to, but what can I get you to, to try, even if it doesn't seem like it could work, you know, mm-hmm. how can, and a lot of, a lot of times it's just something as simple as like, let's do a quick yoga flow. Like I was, I was, they would hate it. And then they, when they're done, they're like, I would, I would make them do yoga sometimes. Like as a group, it would be like, okay, we're doing a yoga. And they'd be like, oh, Miss Jamie, we don't want to do this. And it's like, no, but just, bear with me. You will feel better. You might hate it, but you'll feel better. And then by the end, it's like, they're, they're starting to enjoy that. And, and they're calmer and they're like more relaxed, but it's like, they don't realize that because they haven't even given it a thought. Mm-hmm. No, it's, that's awesome. I, I imagine jujitsu is a big, big thing for that as well too. You know, just being able to, to get out, engage with people, you know, have, you know, like-minded conversations, the the whole gamut. I mean, jujitsu is everything for our family. I feel like it's, it's like the best thing that I've ever done for myself. It's the best thing I ever started with my kids. I was struggling when I started jujitsu. I had just gone through a divorce and it was a pretty volatile divorce. And I have two boys and I was just really, you know, it's funny because everybody was like, oh, you just need to, you need to get them in all these things and you need to do all these things. I was literally running myself ragged, trying to exhaust them of all their energy and it didn't help them. It wasn't until I actually took a step back and was like, realized that all of this activity that we were doing was just amping up their nervous system. I couldn't get them down for bed. And then I realized like, I need a completely different approach. And we, I started working with like a occupational therapist or an OT and she worked a lot with like sensory input. And I mean, for us, it was just like a game changer because you get so much from jujitsu. You have the sensory input. It's, you're getting physical connection, which one of the things that she would do with me and my boys is she would like wrap them up in a blanket and roll them up like a sausage and it was super fun for them but they like loved it because it was also sensory input and it would help them calm down it was it was tapping into their parasympathetic nervous system 
and lowering, you know, their stress and not to mention it cultivated a new community for us. So we had a new community and they were getting physical exercise. So they were tired as a result. And it was also mental. They had to sit. And I think one of the best things that you can do as a parent is to put your children around other adults who they have to respect. And it's like, they're taking directives from another adult. And it took so much pressure off of me. I didn't feel like I was telling them what to do all the time or like yelling at them to respect me because they started to learn that like, okay, an adult is speaking. This is how I behave when any adult is giving me direction. And it just, it was, I mean, jujitsu is, has just changed our lives in so many ways. Well, and you know, I think it goes back to, you know, we were talking about just being at home and trauma that can be caused. And the hard thing for me is like, I, I certainly did not have a bad life. So I, I don't want any yeah. means like, especially mom and dad, if you're listening to this, right. So, but I, myself and most people that I know, and I've heard other people say this, the people that have had crap happen to them are usually a lot more interesting than people who have had just vanilla lives and never had to go through anything. And that's hard for me because as a father, I don't want my children to have to go through some of the things that I went through. But then I also look at myself today and I recognize that a lot of my struggles have built me into the person that I am. But it's like, uh, it's a really interesting, you know, conundrum to be like, okay, well, I want to protect my kids from that. And I think jujitsu or anything else that's a struggle, that's a challenge can almost supplement that challenge for you, you know, maybe not completely, but I think for me, it's kind of given me that hope that, okay, there are things out there that I can have my kids do that will give them that challenge in life to not have them be boring. You know, I, God, I, I sound like no. such an asshole, but it's, no, you know, it's true. I, I agree with you 100% because if you don't push yourself to a place of struggle, I mean, in jujitsu is a struggle. You're, you're in a war for essentially eight minutes, you know, when you're in a match and, and so you grow so much from that experience and even just, you know, competing if they decide to take that path or even if they don't, I have one that really likes to compete and he just like, he's like a switch just to, he turns it on and he's so competitive, but you know, and then he reigns it back. He's like, who is this kid? You know, like their, their personalities just show up, but it's because they are putting themselves in their own crisis for this short period of time. And they just, you grow so much. I think that we don't grow is we don't continue to grow. And that was one of the, if we don't continue to put ourselves in struggle and that, that doesn't mean that we, you know, want to be plagued with problems, but like, how are you, how are you challenging yourself mentally, physically, you know, what are you putting your mind and your body through that's going to help you to overcome things and jujitsu is it's problem solving. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's chess, but it's mental chess because you're constantly putting yourself in a situation that you, you have to get, get out of. And also it's, Man, it's there's so many I could go on about jujitsu. It's just so great for it, and I'm always talking about it. I I think that um, one of the things I would love to do if I have the opportunity eventually is to try to 
bring jujitsu to communities where people are underprivileged and they don't have access to um, a lot of activities. I actually did um, a grad school as like a hypothetical. If you could start a, a community-based um, initiative that could benefit kids, what would it look like? And it's like bringing jujitsu to underserved populations and just giving them access to that so that they can have that opportunity to, you know, work, work out some of their stuff on the mat. I would imagine it would reduce bullying as well. Yeah, of course. You know, build some confidence yeah. in some people and, and teach them. It's funny, right? You teach somebody how to fight and they usually don't want to fight because they understand it. Yes. It's also just like conflict de-escalation because you're, you're trying to build up, I guess, the resources to be able to de-escalate conflict and pull yourself out of it. But it's there if you need it. If you need to respond to something, it's already built into you. You're going to know how to intuitively respond to somebody who will attack you, but you'll also have the mental strength to draw yourself back and, you know, hopefully de-escalate the conflict. Mm-hmm. So I did have one other thing, topic that I wanted to dive in with you. And it's, you know, people who know me know that I'm, I'm a big cannabis advocate, right? So <laughs> spent a lot of time in that space, still consume. Um, but, yeah. you know, you, you mentioned some things to me and it, it, it resonated. You know, I, I know some people who probably, especially now with the legalization and push and just kind of commercialization of cannabis, high THC, you know, whether it's concentrates or other things really driving people to levels of mental instability, and mm -hmm. possibly even schizophrenia. And that was something I really pushed back against for a number of years, in ignorance, you know, because something that I enjoyed, I, you know, what I mean, it probably yeah. subconsciously felt like, okay, I feel it, I personally feel attacked. But as I've understood more, and you know, even our last conversation, I thought it was really important to kind of bring that up. Um, just kind of the yeah. very slippery slope that you get to kind of see on a firsthand basis where people who can't control it are negatively impacted. So I, I've given quite a bit of thought to this since our last conversation. And I was actually talking about it with one of the clinicians today because it is interesting. And I think for some, you know, there's, we know that there's a, a lot of benefits to cannabis as well in terms of like reducing inflammation and managing chronic pain and things like that, that seem certainly like they're a better alternative than some of the other drugs that are used to manage pain and they're less addictive. Um, I think that it's early to tell and we're not really going to have that data set until we do have sort of the legalization around it to be able to understand fully what um, the impact of, of, I think that, that it, if it is, I think it's going to be, you know, hopefully legalized here soon in Texas. And I'm, I'm for decriminalization of marijuana. I think that, um, you know, and they've essentially decriminalized it here. They're not arresting people with small amounts of, of marijuana, but that being said, um, I've also seen people, some of the most psychotic patients that I've seen come into the hospital. It's been very alarming because um, I can think of 
at least two cases of probably the most psychotic patients I've seen that were highly dosed on, you know, they were using high amounts of, of dabs or dabbing or high, highly concentrated THC. And it's, I think for someone, um, it's really important to understand your family history. This is where I think like family history and um, knowing, having an understanding of like predisposition to mood and thought disorders, that if someone starts using that, if they have a family history of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorder, and they're using, they're using cannabis and then, um, you know, it can certainly trigger psychosis. I've seen it and it's, it's, it's alarming because I think that, you know, I, we have, we want to think that it doesn't do that because we see all these benefits. And so we're all, I think that collectively we're, we're hoping that's not the outcome, but that, that also it's, it's for people who are, you know, regular users and things like that. It's like, I look at like, how does, how is it impacting your life is it's almost like alcohol. Like it, it's a problem. It's not a problem until it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was sort of like the, the thought that I came to was like, well, it's, it's not a problem if you're able to manage it and it's seemingly, you know, not interfering your life, but certainly when it starts to impact, you know, I think, I think also a lot of people don't, don't really, have insight to what their tendencies are. So they might not be aware that they are using this thing to suppress something else. And some of it's just being aware of like, what are your tendencies? Are you tending to use more? You know, I'll ask people all the time because I I think it's obviously on a, a scale of like one of, you know, being harmful or not harmful. It's, 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 it's has so many benefits. Mm-hmm. But that being said, um, I see people use it a lot for self-medicating because they're trying to cope with these other things. And then it can lead to other issues like insomnia and increased paranoia. And so I would say to someone that is, you know, like a regular user, it's like, well, is it, are you experiencing any of the, if they were asking me, it's like, well, how do you feel in these other areas of your life? Are you experiencing any any other issues? Um, and is it possible that that consumption is contributing to some of these things? As opposed to the possible possible remedy that you go to every day that's not actually solving the problems. Right, right. It's, I mean, yeah, definitely. I think that, that there's so many benefits to it. And I also just think that it's just important to just understand like, where, where are you within your environment? It goes back to that biopsychosocial perspective. Is it, is it impacting motivation? Are you, is, are you able to function in your relationship? Is it causing problem? And, you know, and then those are the questions that I think people, it's interesting to ask people that they're like, well, I never really thought of it. Um, they, they might come in really paranoid and then, you know, you start getting into their, their assessment and then you're realizing they're smoking weed three, four times a day. And also they're feeling, you know, all this paranoia, then is there a connection? How do you connect the dots? And I think it just depends on the individual. Mm-hmm. 
No, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you brought it up. It just, you know, it's one of those things I've gone hard in the paint, the opposite direction. And, yeah. you know, I've even had to kind of check myself and be like, okay, it's not, there's gray area and everything. And it's like, it's funny because I'm, I'm like always pushing that life is nuanced. And then in some things I get very like binary and it's like, yeah. it's either good or it's bad. And it's like, well, no, I mean, it, it can be good for some people, but I can't ignore the fact that there's probably others who just should completely steer away from it. And it's right. probably very irresponsible of me to not point that out. And I figured having you on here, especially because we had that conversation, I wanted to touch on that for sure, because, you know, it's probably, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, no, I appreciate, I think, I do think it's important, especially because it does seem like we're trending towards it being legal. And I do want people to have that awareness around the understanding of um, that it could potentially cause some of these things. I know, I know Alex Berenson, his, he's on, he's been on Joe Rogan's podcast and his wife actually wrote a book on, um, the link between cannabis use and psychosis and also high crimes. And I haven't read it yet. It's something I want to, but I do think, you know, there could be a connection there. And I think once, once we do have more, more data, but I mean, I look at, I look at alcohol and I think of like all the problems that are linked to alcohol use and, you know, the legalization. And certainly if you had to pick one or the other, I mean, I have a very clear feeling on that. And it's, it's, it's certainly, it's certainly something to just have that awareness of and to bring into our consciousness that like, okay, it, it might not be the right fit for everybody. And this could lead to these things. And just having that understanding, I think is important for people that are considering using it, you know, for pain management. And I think it's important to like, look at your, look at your makeup, look at your family history. Is there a history? It's, it's it doesn't seem like there's as much strong correlation between chemical dependency, but we do develop, um, patterns of behavior and rituals that are hard to break, which are addictive patterns. It's like it gets wired into your like patterning. I just pushed myself to say, okay, try to go tomorrow and not do that. You know, can you yeah. do and, and the sober October thing has always been like a really cool way for me to try to like, just break the habit and make sure like, okay, am I too dependent on this? How, how bad is it going to suck to try to you know, move away from these habits and rituals to kind of keep myself, you know, and I, you make all these justifications. And I, I'm very thankful that I've been, you know, somewhat sane in all of it, but it, it makes you think for sure. You know? Yeah. I think um, it's amazing how strong, like these hooks can be. I mean, I have the one thing I'm clearly addicted to is coffee and it's, it's like a, you know, it's not, <laughs> It's a widely acceptable thing to be addicted to, but the idea of like not getting up and having a, a cup of coffee would be super difficult for me. And I analyze it all the time. It's like, why couldn't I just like, could I just stop doing it? <laughs> what, why is this so hard? Even though it's, it seems silly, but you well, know, certainly it. like if you overdo it, like anything else, it causes anxiety. And mm -hmm. I've been there, you know, maybe can even like cause you to be manic. <laughs> Yeah. I, I wouldn't complain if too many people drink coffee from my, my standpoint. So 
I love action. I yeah, I was thinking about that too. Um, <laughs> I need more more people addicted to caffeine. No, that's that's horrible. But um, no, I, I agree. It's um, it's a very interesting topic. I hope to have more conversations about it and kind of challenge that way of thinking. Just you know, I think it's it's important. The things that I'm most passionate about, I'm finding I need to challenge them in kind of these types of conversations because. Otherwise, you will find yourself slowly moving into these echo chambers where you only want to hear what you want to hear. So um, it's true. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. This was a lot of fun, Jamie. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Most definitely. You get you can tell Zach now, you know, I've he's got some big shoes to fill as far as the next time he comes on the show and has a conversation with me. I think you got, <laughs> you've outdone his. Is, he's been on like three times now. Oh my gosh. He has no shortage of things to talk about. And he always enjoys it. He's always telling me about it, your conversation. So I know he appreciates it. And yeah, I think he can out talk me though. <laughs> <laughs> They're always fun. I get, I tell him like, I, I get more people that reach out to me when he's on some good. Some are like, I give yeah. me his information. I want to talk about it. But that's what I love. It's like, he's, he's so such an open book and willing to come on and have the conversations and it's always fun. And uh, I'm glad that he was able to convince you to come on and have a conversation with me too. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I'm glad you thought of me and thanks for reaching out. Most definitely.